everybody, Jason Bailey here, host of Fun City Cinema. I just wanted to do a brief introduction before we play this episode, which we made as a bonus episode only for our Patreon subscribers. And then after we finished it, we decided we wanted to go ahead and share it on the general feed so that those of you who like the show and are maybe on the fence about subscribing could get an idea of what these episodes are, which is a, you know, a more conversational sort of post-mortem and also expansion on some of the things we do in the episodes. But we wanted to share this one so that anybody who wants to become a patron can do so. And that's at www.patreon.com slash funcitycinema. Bonus episodes are available right at the starting level of $5 a month. There are some other goodies available as well, but even at that that starter level, you'll get bonus episodes like this one and also the one we're going to do next month, which I'm going to now tease somewhat shamelessly because it is a good one. I interviewed Martin Scorsese earlier this year for the book. Hi, Jason. How are you? And you'll hear pieces of that interview um, throughout the series. But one of the things that happened was I asked sort of a general question about the first New York movies he saw, some of his essential New York movies. And he said, there are a couple of couple of questions here, though, that I'm going to have to take a little more time, like of some of your favorite essential New York movies. The last question. I do have some interesting ones that are not usually talked about. So I'd like to take a little time with that. How long do you need this thing? And then a couple of days later, I got a Microsoft Word document from him that he had drafted of 60 plus essential New York movies to I think we can all agree, the quintessential New York filmmaker. So we're going to go through that list, which as far as I can tell, is not is not available anywhere else. He hasn't made this list for anyone else. Mike and I and our special guest, Glenn Kenny, who has a book out next month about the making of Goodfellas, a really terrific volume called Made Men, uh, which you should pick up in the interim. So that's just a little taste of, of what's to come to subscribers. Uh, so if you like this and you like the idea of that, head on over to patreon.com slash funcitycinema. Join up. We appreciate your support. And now here is our first bonus episode. The city of New York, we've got a system. Not much, but we're fond of it. I love this dirty town. God, I hate this town. Welcome to New York. <laughs> What will happen to Bensonhurst if everybody ran around and did their own fucking thing, huh? You want to live in a toilet like Manhattan or the Bronx? You say you were going to drive me home. To the Bronx? Are you out of your mind? Well, what kind of a life is this? Where the hell do you want to move to? This goddamn city. Fun City Cinema. By Jason Bailey and Mike Hull. You just flush it right down the fucking toilet. I'm walking here! I'm walking here! There's a lot of crazy fucks in this town. I'm not leaving! You people can keep this city. We're trying to run a city, not a goddamn democracy. Well, Mr. Mayor, you wanted New York known as Fun City. I think you're going to get your wish. Hello, uh, Patreon. Is it? See, I never know. Is it patrons or do you say Patreon subscribers like formally like that? I don't want to say Patreons because that sounds stupid. Patreons does sound stupid. I like patrons though in that it kind of like harkens back to that middle age yeah. artistic uh, lineage thing. So I don't know if it's exactly correct internet language, but it's what I like. Okay. So we're going to go with it. Hi, patrons. Jason Bailey here. 
And Michael Hull. And thanks for, well, first of all, thanks for being a patron through Patreon. And also thank you for listening to this, the first of our uh, monthly bonus episodes. Uh, how you doing, Mike? I'm doing very well, and I'm excited to be talking to you again. I like the first episode. I liked it too. That's great. I'm glad we both liked it. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed like other people liked it also. It seems like they did. It seems like the 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 feedback we got was good. Uh, people were into what we're doing, um, into the, 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 the production elements, if I may compliment you, Mr. Holt. Thank you very much. And the story we're telling. And yeah, like, I, so I, I, that is, that's a good place to start. Like, thank you, all of you, not only for subscribing, but also for like listening to the podcast and tweeting about it and recommending it to people and rating and reviewing if you did any of those things. The way that, you know, normally like a podcast works is they've got a bunch of these lined up and ready to go and they drop a season where you get one, you know, every week or two. But with us, because it's an independent thing and, you know, and we're, we're sort of self-financing it, there's no sort of we're self-financing it. <laughs> we kind of wanted to just do it once and see if it worked. You know, to, we really thought of of episode one as a pilot in the sort of traditional television sense, like do one and see if it plays and then when it was done you know because it was sort of tying into what was happening in the world we wanted to get it out into the world as quickly as possible so as an, as a result of that we're going to be in this thing where you know we're sort of kicking one out we're aiming for every six weeks or so which is hopefully it's a very long time in, in this world in this cultural world and hopefully people won't forget about us between them, which is another reason that we wanted to sort of uh, do these these bonus episodes to, you know, follow up, to share some additional information occasionally, you know, to to sort of peek at what we're doing next and just to kind of keep the momentum going to some extent. And I guess also to sort of to 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 tag on to to some things we might have said, Mike, is that a fair way to put that? We finished this thing and, you know, like 20 minutes before it's supposed to go out, I have this realization of something that I really wish I would have said. You know, <laughs> Anyone who writes or podcasts or, you know, or, or does new like this is like you all that always happens when it's something important. Like you always think of the one more thing too late. That's just like an inevitable part of the process. The piece at that point is, you know, we kind of were referring to it as being, you know, finely balanced or maybe even a bit precariously balanced at that point where it kind of had this rhythm and and pace and style that we were both really happy with. And, and there comes a point in a project where it feels like, you know, if I touch it again, the whole thing's going to fall over somehow. <laughs> And I don't really know how to explain that feeling, but I think we had both kind of reached that point with it. And I'm at peace. I'm I'm at peace yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, do, would you like to, though, share that that final, or do you want it to to continue living in your head? <laughs> no, I think the B, you know, the the B side, the uh, the the bonus episode is a good place to talk about it. You know, right. there's I'm in Portland, Oregon, and and you know, there's been a lot of uh, unrest here and arguing with the cops and a lot of protest going on and and of course talking about do the right thing and talking about what happens and that is obviously relevant in a national sense right now but it feels really particularly in my backyard both because it's happening here where I live but also because since we've been here for almost three years now and the entire time that we've been here we've been working with a group called Don't Shoot Portland uh, and you know we've been working on racial justice and we've been 
out protest. You know, we've been doing all the things that have been happening for the last, you know, few months. Right. But we've been doing it really on a very hyper local level. Portland is a very hyper local town. People here don't typically seem to care much about anybody else. It's very it's very <laughs> locally focused, you know. Yeah. And so we working with a local group has been a great way to kind of to move to a place, you know, because we had family here is why we came here. We didn't really have a lot of friends here. So it's been a great way to kind of get to know the community in an interesting way, because if you don't have a very particular group of friends here, it's easy to just kind of like fall into like neck beards and IPAs. Because <laughs> sure. that really is the dominant culture here. You like grow a beard, you stop shaving your armpits if you ever did, and then you ride your bicycle to a place where you drink a sour IPA. So anyway, we find we find this other group of people and we talk in this group a lot about different tactics to try to approach these problems of racial justice. And and, you know, not everybody's comfortable going out and and yelling through a megaphone, you know, and, and not everybody's physically capable or mentally capable to put themselves in that kind of situation. You know, the group we work with is nonviolent and it's kind of a given that breaking windows and burning shit is not how we do things. And we will block traffic and we'll go you know post up in the mayor's office and stuff you know we will have direct action in that way but a lot of what we do is trying to build support communities that are separate from government that are separate from being accessible to white supremacy whether that's intentional white supremacy like three percenters and proud boys and a lot of those assholes that live around <laughs> right. here or whether that's kind of you know well-intentioned white supremacy like our mayor so now we're in this situation where suddenly People all over the country are going out. Let's just say we're, ha- we're seeing protests all over the country. And in some places, we're seeing one or two nights of actual violence. Now, it's been portrayed as if there's been physical damage and violence the entire, all summer long. Right. People have just been breaking shit is the way some people talk about it. But if you actually look at it, the vast majority of the vandalism, any kind of looting, anything like that was like a couple of days in the very beginning of this thing. And since then, there has been all of this other kind of activity, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that has been really fascinating to see is all of these different communities around the country starting to take take the idea of defunding police seriously. Just as we're recording now, there's been a big move in Austin, Texas in the last week or so, where it's like they're talking about defunding one-third of the money from the police and diverting that to other social programs. And the idea of that is you stop crime up the river, right? Upstream is what that's called. And we have been having this conversation longer than I've been here because I was having it with people in New York before we got here. Right. Right? But that conversation was never going anywhere. You go into city council, you talk about this stuff, you get treated like you're out of your fucking mind. (laughs) You know, like you're some sort of fringe character because there's all of these assumptions about public safety. And then, all of a sudden, people all over the country are burning shit down. And our assumptions about public safety are not as easy to kind of rest in because this is not public safety. People are burning shit to the ground, right? So, like, clearly this system is failing us. And it all of a sudden we're having these conversations. There's doors being opened by city council and by people who are actually in a, a position of power are looking at activists and saying, I don't know what to do. You know, like, clearly I've run out of ideas. Mm-hmm. And because I'm a, like, dumb movie nerd, what it always makes me think about is, you know, the whole 70s Hollywood system, right? And, like, at some point, like, they just decided that they clearly didn't understand what was going to sell. 
And they just gave these fucking drug addicts a bunch of cameras and were like, all right, let's just see what happens. <laughs> and what happened yeah. was the Godfather, right? And like, right. and this whole history right. that like, I don't have to explain to you, right? And I know that that's not an obvious thing to connect it to, but that's just, we're on a movie podcast. That's what it makes me think about, right? So anyway, this is the headspace that we're in. And now I'm watching Do the Right Thing. And of course, I have to watch it like four or five times before we do this. And then I'm working with all the audio like it's filling up my head. And for the first time, I notice that the fire starts and then the police, you know, the, the, the fire department comes and they spray water on the fire. But they fairly quickly turn their hoses onto the crowd. And in that moment, Smiley comes in. And he puts the picture of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King on the wall of fame. The riot made the room for the activists to achieve the thing that they wanted all along. Right. Right. To me, that feels like Spike Lee saying, sometimes the only way to get what we need is to burn shit to the fucking ground. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a very clear, significant moment. It's what ends the climax of the movie. But to frame it in the terms of demand and protest and results is really kind of mind-blowing. And also, and you'll, you'll hear this, we're going to play a, a much longer version of my interview with Brandon Harris. Um, and... It's interesting to think of that in the framework of one of the things that he and I talk about in this interview, which we didn't have have time to get into in in the pod, it, which is the way in which Spike typically deals with militant characters, because it's a complicated and sort of thorny topic. Because he is, as we meant, as some of the 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 critics we you know talked about in in that episode sort of gleefully pointed out he 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 was a middle class black kid like he grew up in fort green his dad you know was a was was in the arts his dad was a jazz musician you know and so in a lot of ways when you when you look at that background and think about how often with of course the very notable exception of malcolm x but in things in films like Do the Right Thing and in Bamboozled and in some of his other works, the sort of militant characters are not always treated all that reverentially and are in fact sometimes sort of painted buffoonishly or as ineffectual. And so I think that thinking about that moment in that framework that you've just placed it in adds to that conversation and that idea and that interrogation of how he writes and plays those characters in a really interesting way. You know, there's also this other really interesting moment that I had never really noticed before. But at the end of the movie, Sal literally stands there and throws money at the problem. <laughs> right? He right. he doesn't yeah. he doesn't really engage. He complains <laughs> about I built every fucking light socket, every fucking whatever right. I built with my own hands. He, like, does yeah. his, like, white grievance thing, and then yeah. he throws money at the problem, and then and then Mookie says, I got to go see my son if it's okay with you. Then Mookie asks his permission to take this money that's just been thrown at him and go spend time with his family to try and reinvest it in the community, right? Now, 
maybe I'm reading a little too deep into this. Maybe I've watched it too many times. Maybe that's what podcasts are for. Fuck you. <laughs> it's just been, it was just more, it was more present in the movie than anything I've ever, than any other time I've watched the movie, I guess. So good job, Jason Bailey, doing Do the Right Thing in Summer 2020, bro. <laughs> good. So let's, uh, let's, let's do our, our little centerpiece of this bonus episode. Which is, like I said, is is a, a much longer. Uh, I mean, you just heard little droplets of it in the in the episode itself. But we wanted to play a long version of this this talk I had with Brandon Harris. And and you know, if I can do a little bit of you know, I know people, especially people who listen who maybe are doing podcasts of their own, are interested at least in your process. For me, as in this, I, I sort of face the same conundrum that I always face when I'm working on a book or a long form project, which is the question of when to do the interviews, at what point in the process to do the interviews. Because on one hand, you want to come with enough research to where you're like prepared with like new insights and insightful questions and like to really like come armed for the conversation. But on the other hand, if you if you do it the, conver- the the interview too late in the process, then you've already sort of formed ideas and maybe even a narrative and you end up consciously or not sculpting the interview and the questions you're asking and the answers you're soliciting to conform to that narrative and sort of closing off what your subject is bringing to it. And so that's, like I say, something I'm always wrestling with. On this one, it kind of worked itself out in interesting ways because I... I did my best to schedule the interviews sort of at a midpoint. So like I was prepared, but not too prepared, kind of knew the shape of the episode, but was prepared to go new places based on what our guests would tell me. But then interestingly, and and I'll get, get back to Brandon in a second, Jamil, who we decided early on, you know, Mike actually had had the idea when we were working on format that we would do. I'm right, Mike, like that the, the idea of instead of threading all the interviews of sort of plucking out one that could take a bigger picture for us and doing that at the end, that was your idea, right? I, If you say so. <laughs> it sounds right. like a thing that I would say. Yes, it's a thing you said. So we knew that we wanted to bring Jamil in at the end to, to help us, you know, put this into, a, into the current context, the contemporary context, and that he could speak to based on some of the writing he had done. Through no fault of anyone's own, we ended up like he wasn't going to be able to do that interview until a good two or three weeks after we were planning on starting to write and edit and when the other interviews were already in the tank. And so we had to kind of make this call. And what we ended up doing was we went ahead and wrote up to that interview and cut up to that interview and then talked to him at the end. And and this, I think, is a good case of sort of circumstance forming your methodology, because in that event, and Mike, correct me if, if you disagree, the fact that we were going into that interview as a summary armed with what we were saying so far allowed us to to make the most of that interview with him. Yeah? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That kind of, I think, put us in a position to really kind of mine his expertise to fill in the spaces that we were still questioning in a way. Exactly. Especially at the end. Like, we had a version of the last monologue, but we hadn't finished, we hadn't locked it and we hadn't recorded it yet because I just, I knew it wasn't there yet. And you knew it wasn't there yet. And I said, almost in desperation, well, maybe after we talk to Jamil, we'll be able to get it there. And then, fuck, like, miraculously enough, we did. Like, we we rewrote that interview, like, or that last monologue as soon as we got off 
the line with him on that interview. And that's like the way that the show ends. It's very hard at that point, even with two of us, because we've both kind of locked our perspectives on it and what we kind of want to get out of it. But then you sit down and talk to somebody like Jamil, who is not just like incredibly intelligent, but literally crafts words for a living. You know, you talk to somebody like that and they have the power to, you know, kind of bump your bump your orbit a little bit, regardless of 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 how locked in you are. Trying to kind of bake that into the process is something that I think is almost impossible to do without having it happen accidentally once. Right. Right. Because n- neither of us would think like, oh, you know what we should do? We should do the, like three quarters of this shit and then do another interview. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But now that that's happened, like as I'm scheduling interviews for the next episode, like I'm doing everything I can to put to do the big interview last so that we can hopefully sort of recapture that and and, and replicate the accident. Anyway, Brandon Harris, when I was scheduling all of these interviews for the midpoint and even, you know, when I was first approaching Jamil. You know, this is the pilot episode of an indie podcast. These are people I know personally, but that I'm trying not to impose on their time too much for this little thing that isn't even a thing yet. And so in each of those initial sort of asks, I said, look, we'll we'll keep it tight. We'll talk for 15 or 20 minutes. I'll have targeted questions, you know, we'll because I, I didn't want anybody to think that if they're committing to it, they're committing to doing like a two plus hour conversational podcast. A ramble cast. <laughs> yeah. Like we're doing right now, for example. Um, I wanted to be like, you know, it's a non-narrative storytelling podcast. It's highly produced. It'll be, you know, it, it, we'll keep it tight. So you don't have to spend too much of your time. And they all agreed to that. And we pretty much kept to that. But Brandon and I, who I met, we did a panel together a few years ago when my Richard Pryor book came out. He just, we got on the horn and it was just such a good conversation. And he has so much to say. And and I found myself sort of going off my 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 prep list and just wanting to sort of pursue some of the ideas that he was raising and then before i knew it it had been 30 minutes and i was halfway through my list and like there were still things i really needed to talk to him about and i i started to apologize for i'm like i'm sorry because we're going over and he said and you hear it at the beginning of the episode of the finished episode he says in in just the most comforting way when you're conducting an interview as a journalist he says i cleared the hour man like he was he couldn't have been (laughs) more open or accommodating about it and he also knows like he's done enough interviews to know the kind of interview he is that he's not gonna fuck around with yes no answers right so i love this talk and i loved getting to, to go along with him like this and he said so much great stuff that we weren't able to to sort of weave into the, the this sort of tight tapestry of the episode that i wanted to share you know a, a much longer version of that talk and, and see sort of what it would spark in our listeners and and you know some of the some of the ideas and suggestions that he poses so we're gonna go to that interview now When did you first encounter Spike Lee, either the work or just the celebrity? Like, when did this guy first come on your radar? I think that I went with my entire family to see Malcolm X in the theater Mm. at the now defunct Kenwood 2, which was one of the largest cinemas in Cincinnati at the time and one of the strangest shapes in cinemas I I can ever recall. uh, it was it was sort of like the shape of a cone, and there was this <laughs> giant 
lane in the middle of it that separated like the sort of uh, mezzanine from from the lower seating. Uh, and I saw many classics there, like Tales from the Hood mm-hmm. and um, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight and <laughs> many other uh, horror thrillers that I was so into at 11 and 12 years old. Right. All of um, our early 90s faves. But uh, but I think the first movie I recall seeing there is Malcolm X, mm-hmm. um, which in 1992. And I, I would have been under 10 years old to see that R-rated film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was seen as that that significant of a thing, right? You know that my entire family would trot out to go see that film. And I'm sure that around that time, I also saw the Oprah Winfrey episode where Spike Lee is discussing the film and Denzel's performance with Oprah. And I remember thinking to myself, like Spike Lee is an and perhaps the important black filmmaker to know mm. like I, I that was something i i was able to garner as early as nine years old wow you know and that's without having seen at that point in my life she's got a habit certainly which my mother reviled and refused to let me see right or you know things like school days mo better blues and of course um do the right thing uh his enduring masterpiece yeah so i, I think I, I first became aware of spike then um, and throughout the 90s, you know, I, I guess I followed his filmmaking in a loose sort of way, maybe a more active way toward the end of the 90s. But, but you know, I remember seeing Crooklyn for the first time on my mother's cheater box. So she used to have this cable box that allowed yeah. you to steal the pay-per-view channels from Time Warner Cable or yeah. whatever our cable provider was at the time. And it was like kind of like a beige box with a little gray knob. And once you got up above the 50s, the channels were all the various pay-per-view channels. So, I, so you know, that I think between 1993 and 1995, I must have watched, you know, uh, Malice by Harold Becker. Like, oh, God, you know, yes. The, the Crow with Brandon Lee, you know, 10 right. or 15 times. Uh, you know, Death Wish 5. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the Crackdown. Um, and, but but around that time, Crooklyn was also on, on, um, uh, on that kind of, early video on demand, shall we say. And, uh, and so I saw that movie several times and, and um, thought it was lovely clockers as well. But I think that the movie, the first Spike Lee movie I remember seeing in the theater and thinking it was like a big deal to see it in the theater as a sort of sentient teenager mm-hmm. was he got game. Mm-hmm. He got game was like a big deal. And I remember getting into like arguments. I went to a very, uh, mostly white, mostly sort of wealthy day school as mm-hmm. as the token Negro student or one of the <laughs> two or three token Negro students. And um, I remember I got into a big argument with a friend of mine about the movie because he thought like the only takeaway he could find in the movie was like, oh, well, Ray Allen goes get recruiting and like fucks like these two uh, <laughs> white co-eds and the movie is really just saying that, like, white girls are easy and, you know, it's tough to be a young basketball player. And like, <laughs> What's tough about being a young basketball player? You know, I'm like, that was his takeaway from the film, I guess. Uh-huh. And, of course, I thought it was just such genius. It was it was one of the first soundtracks I bought, too. I remember there was that great... Um, P.E. soundtrack, uh, yeah. P.E., yeah. Like, uh, Public Enemy covered uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young right. song. That, that, that to a great effect, and you know, I, I guess right around that time, I probably also got my hands on 
Fear of a Black Planet and mm-hmm. uh, some of their other classics. So yeah, you know, so at that point, I thought I thought of Spike as like you know the most significant, most important black filmmaker around. I hadn't really discovered the breadth of African American cinema um, in any meaningful sense beyond perhaps his work and the work of John Singleton and maybe Hollywood Shuffle by Robert right. Townsend. But you know, I knew nothing about like the LA Rebellion at that time sure. or Oscar Micheaux or you know, various other sort of independent pioneers, um, the Bill Guns of the world and such. Uh, who, of course, Spike later remade Bill's movie as the the Sweet Blood of Jesus, right. uh, Gotcha Hess, and I um, uh, wrote a long essay about that, yes, which, which um, I read, which appears in uh, in, in plus one number eighteen, I yeah. believe, or maybe it's twenty two. I can't remember. Can you expand on just a little bit more, just because because you know I'm trying to kind of fill in him and and moving into the to the to the making of this movie when when we're telling the story about the sort of like presence that he had for you as a young black film lover and, and eventual filmmaker, how he sort of dominated that space in, in this particular period. I think it's probably hard for white Americans to grasp the idea of, of having kind of like a sole public representative in a certain medium be have such an outsized public persona and mainstream awareness yeah because there's like you know like dozens of famous white film directors at any given moment right but there came a point in the early 90s uh and i think this is not this is almost entirely because spike starred in many of his own films at that right. point that Spike Lee was this like massive celebrity, you know, and like the obviously the Jordan commercials and the, the various other sort of branding impresario stuff that he did, I, I think only aided that. Yeah. So, you know, like there, that was the circumstance when I was coming of age. I, I, I don't think you would talk to a single other figure in in cinema who is an African-American came of age in that space who wouldn't say the same that, you know, Spike's Spike was just like the, you know, the the standard bearer. Right. So, okay. So when did you first see do the right thing and what were your kind of initial takeaways from it? I probably saw do the right thing for the first time sometime late in middle school or early in high school. I remember I had a teacher in seventh grade named Trey Martin. He was my English teacher and Trey uh, was kind of like a, a hip young English teacher who like, you know, could quote Biggie lyrics and like, <laughs> and I remember him talking at length about do the right thing in the, in his class. And mm-hmm. I had not seen it at that point, but knew I must see it, you know, and that that was like the earlier Spike Lee movie that everyone said you had to see. Right. You know, I know I caught like school days on cable and no better blues, maybe on TV at some point, but I, I feel like do the right thing just didn't air on TV much back then you know no it did not there was Uh, yeah you're right and maybe maybe you can shed some light on that for me but but basically i um i must have rented it at a a blockbuster video sometime 
in the late Clinton administration mm-hmm. and was floored by it, you know. Um, and then, you know, I remember I owned the DVD for a while in high school and I probably watched the movie four or five times in those years. And it's, you know, always been, I think, since then, uh, something I've seen is like, you know, truly one of the most significant American motion pictures. Aside from its continued, you know, relevance impressions, which, which we'll get to in a second, what do you think makes it great just as a movie? Well, you know, like my 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 dear friend Nick Pinkerton once pointed out in an article about Wesley Snipes that Spike Lee's style has always flirted with catastrophe, mm. the expressionistic camera work, yes. the sort of exaggerated characterizations, the fourth wall breaking, the, you know, like that can always go wrong. Right. You know, like, and to be fair, uh, I think it has often, yep. especially lately. But I think at that moment, he was kind of at, with the team he had built, he was like at the peak of his game. You yep. know, like, I, I just think that like that movie from a stylistic standpoint, a production design standpoint, the cinematography, the sense of the heat of the day, it is, it's really special. Yeah. You know, uh, just the tech stuff. Yeah. But beyond that, I think he also just casts the two things. I mean, from a textural standpoint, he's dealing with stuff that we're obviously dealing with today. Right. You know, like from the moment that movie was made to right now, police brutality in the black community has been a problem. It was a problem 30 years before that. It's going to hopefully not be a problem 30 years from now. But in the 30 year sense, it certainly has. Yep. And had his remain one. And, you know, um, and that so that from a subject matter point of view, it's always been relevant. That sort of juxtaposition at the top that, that's very didactic, which is another thing that in Spike's oeuvre maybe at other points doesn't feel like it works as well. But right. like then, you know, comparing the sort of Martin and Malcolm notions of liberal assimilation versus black nationalism, you know, uh, force versus pacifism, wh- however you want to put that dichotomy. And I think that that is oversimplified. But nonetheless, I think it's really p- sorting through that stuff. Yeah. In a way that in its drama, in a way that's really moving and thought provoking. But then also, I think that the really enduring special quality of the movie and the thing that I think makes it stand out with like other key movies by big American auteurs in that era. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm thinking of things like uh, Robert Altman's The Player, uh, Barry Levinson's Diner, we mm-hmm. back in the 80s. It is like one of the great ensemble pieces. Right. You know. It it, it it truly captures a moment in about 15 different careers that <laughs> like, like, you know, it's just great. Like Martin Lawrence before he's a star, right. you know, just in the background doing something funny every once in a while. Roger Guinevere Smith, one of the great monologists mm-hmm. we have, you know, who Spike has done really great, you know, one man work with. Uh, as the sort of Greek chorus, right. <laughs> if you will, um, Spike himself is the lead. His sister, uh, the, the 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 lovely couple of Ozzie Davis and Ruby D having their mini love story in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, da- the late Danny Aiello in in perhaps his most iconic performance. John Turturro, you know, very young, very just just fierce, powerful, fierce yeah. John Turturro. Uh, you know, John Savage is standing around wearing a Boston <laughs> shirt. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just uh, Robin Harris, who passed yes. away a few years before, you know, sitting on the corner, uh, Sweet Dick Willie. You know, yeah. I mean, there's just there's so much life to that fucking movie. Yeah. And um, 
and, and that's just a really rare thing. I mean, you know, I, I, I that that to pull off that kind of ensemble piece with that aplomb and that consistent energy from the late Bill Nunn to you know on and on and on and on. It, it's just a really you know unique thing. So I so I think th- those three elements are really the things that combine to make it um, really special. And that's not to say you know Spike. I, I think that in a way. Um, you know, uh, Malcolm X uh, is also a great ensemble movie. You, mm-hmm. you don't think of it as such because it's so dominated by Denzel's performance. Right. But the gallery of just great supporting work in that movie is, I mean, so yeah. the Al Freeman Jr. is incredible. Fire in that film. Yeah. You know, uh, like a Delroy. Delroy, yeah. you know. Peter uh, Boyle, that great Peter little Peter Boyle, Boyle bit. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and I think the movie, you know, he made right before that, like Jungle Fever, Mm -hmm. is also kind of a great ensemble thing. And even though it has, like, I think truly one of the most ludicrous last shots in the history of cinema. Absolutely. um, Where you sense the style teetering, you know, it's like, oh, well, that, you shouldn't have done that. But, um, but yet, I mean, Anthony Quinn's work, you know. When like, I went back uh, to it, I hadn't seen it. I watched it when it just came out on Blu-ray like a couple of months ago. And it was the first time I'd seen it since it first came out. And I was floored by how I had undervalued it. Because I feel like because it was sold as capital letters, interracial romance, like that. this is our subject and this is what. And it's, it's about like a thousand things. It's like an Altman style, like Nashville of Brooklyn circa 91. It's this huge tapestry. Yeah. Yeah. People forget that. They they kind of think it's all about, you know, Annabella Ciora and, yeah. and Wesley Snipes having sex on a on a architect's desk or something. <laughs> but it's, you know, uh, yeah. I think it's a much richer Absolutely. uh tapestry than that. And um, you know, I in the book, you know, I I I kinda in the chapter in the book that, that I deal with, with with Spike's career and my own relationship to it and and Bill, that era's significance is, is one I, I try to really, you know, give reverence to because beyond Spike's filmmaking and him being kind of like the North Star, if you will, mm-hmm. and maybe someone like Singleton also gaining a, a fair amount of notoriety, although, you know, I think Spike probably could no longer ride the bus, right. whereas I can imagine John Singleton getting right. on a bus in Cincinnati in 1994, no one knowing who he was. Sure. You know, you had this moment where it seemed like black cinema would become like a major thing. Yeah. And of course, that, you know, that's, that was something I wasn't privy to at the time. Like, I wasn't aware of that right. larger, like, oh, 21 movies by black directors right. got in the studio system in 1991, 92. Right. Whoa, like, everyone wants to make black movies, you know. And, and if you look back at those films, you know, I think the broad majority of those films didn't really lead to lasting careers. Right. And the question as to why is an open one, because certainly, although some of those films are not great, I won't name names, but, um, (laughs) you know, there are plenty of filmmakers that make not great first films that get to keep working because, you know, whomever their agent is or they're good in the room or they seem trustworthy or the studio exec, you know, summered at the same summer camp or something. (laughs) Um, I don't know when that era felt like it was officially dead, mm-hmm. but it was um, brief. I, I was, but, I was aware enough at the time that it was very brief, but it just, it's, it's strange to me that, you know, when I was 11, something like Jason's lyric, right. Or the inkwell, Maddie Rich's mm-hmm. largely forgotten second film. And, la- and to this day, last film, mm-hmm 
was that opened at the drive-in. Yeah. Like touchstone release. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. like a black drama with nobody famous in it. Yeah. Released by Disney. You yeah. know, like these days when movies like that come by, they're often in the parlance of studio system, I feel like they're often considered too small. Yep. Too execution dependent or something. But um <laughs> that's a real term. But uh <laughs> good to know. Yeah. I think, you know, that that was in a looking back on it, kind of like a magical era. Yeah. Because there had not been black cinema that was put forward by mainstream entities with that level of, you know, marketing commitment Mm -hmm. and what have you, regardless of whatever interference on the part of white studio execs was taking place then, which I'm sure was profound. But, But, you know, it's hard to peg like when that era really fully felt like it was over. I mean, I, I think of something like Ted Witcher's uh, remarkable debut feature, Love Jones, mm-hmm. um, God, as I something that, that I would yeah. probably yeah. loop into that as well. And that, that came out, I believe, in 98 or 97. So, you know, that's a little later. Yeah. That, too, feels like the type of movie we, we rarely get these days, although something like The Photograph mm-hmm. feels like maybe uh, a throwback to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I was, even as a somewhat cognizant, teenage adolescent film goer aware of what a golden age of black cinema I was living through at the time. Yeah. And I, um, that's too bad. I wish I'd hold on to that more. Yeah. Okay. In the book, which after all has Bed-Stuy right in the title, you make a really (laughs) interesting observation about do the right thing specifically as a Bed-Stuy film. And I wondered if we could talk about that just a little bit. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, well, there was a whole era where I lived a very short walk in Bedsty, which is a very large community mm-hmm. from the street where they shot Malcolm X, or excuse me, do the right thing. And I would often walk to that block in 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 my sort of curiosity and um, in, in various forms of New York movie tourism. You know, no one has ever made New York plays itself, but someone ought to. Yep. You know, and the first thing you notice, of course, is that where the pizzeria is uh, is just like a empty lot. Wow. You know, there's literally nothing there because that that was actually built for the film. Right. You know, and nothing has been built there since. At least the last time I was there was a plaque there that that acknowledged, you know, that that do the right thing had been filmed there. Um, But much of the rest of that block looks other than the clear use of color that was the productions, you know, the production designers addition uh, to the building surrounding it and repainting those, it looks exactly the same. I mean, you know, that the foyer of the building just next to the pizzeria is where Samuel L. Jackson's radio studio was. Right. Right. And that's actually like the foyer of the building or something, you know, like those windows are really kind of arching windows that he had. But that, you know, you see that building, you're like, oh my gosh, this is the street. You know, it really, it's the first thing that kind of evokes it. It really, potent way and you know where the korean market was there's just like a apartment building now um there's no like kind of um ground floor shop and i Mm -hmm. i I suspect that was built for the movie as well and you know over the years i I think for the 20th anniversary of the film i remember spike doing like a block party there and and public enemy performed like you know some of their hits like poorly (laughs) um and Man, what a COVID spreader that would be now. <laughs> I'll just never be in a crowd like that right. again. You know, like right. that 
but you know, I remember asking people like, like, cause I, I was living around there at the time and I, I would, when on a normal day when there wasn't like do the right thing parade going on there or, or remembrance, I, you know, I'd ask just random kids in the city, like, do you know, like do the right thing was shot here? And they'd be like, what are you talking about, man? Mm. But, you know, like, so it's, it's so interesting how that something so iconic can be even for the people who live there, just like this, like piece of history they don't really grasp onto or right think much about or yeah yeah and you also had said that that it 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 struck you that maybe it was a little bit of a of a wish fulfillment version of what bedsty was at 89 am i am i remembering this right yeah i mean i just think that you know i i i when you look at the crime statistics for bedsty in that year at that time and and spike got some flack for this sure that he sort of ignored the the crack epidemic in the movie and and of course, you know, in uh, Jungle Fever with Sam Jackson, Halle Berry's characters, he he sort of rectifies that, if you will. But yeah, you know, I think it was a much more impoverished and vibrant place at that moment in history. That block specifically, which of course is, and this is something that's never dealt with in the movie, but is right around the corner from like massive concrete housing projects. Mm that are very unforgiving. And uh, I'm sure at that point in a New York city of 2000 murders a year, less forgiving than they are now. Right. And, and that poverty is something that you never really grasp in the movie. Right. You know, even someone like the mayor who is, you know, trying to get changed by sweeping the front of the pizzeria. Mm-hmm. Like we don't really, we're not really sitting in his poverty. Right. You know, like that, his whole part of the story is, is like his misbegotten love affair with, you know, his real life wife. And then, uh, you know, being kind of like a voice of sadness that the, 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 the lightly worn solidarity of the community, you know, collapses Mm -hmm. under the weight of this, this heinous, you know, crime by the police that, that, you know, I, I don't think that, coming out of the 1980s at the tail end of the 1980s anyone needed any more misery porn about sure. the black community sure you know i think so much of the way that our images were contextualized to white and in general non-black america was essentially violent propaganda that you know our communities were overrun with drug pushing super predators yeah and although that was an aspect of many impoverished black communities the community that do the right thing is set in that Bed-Stuy. Uh, Bed-Stuy is a place of remarkable class diversity within the black community, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and at that point in Bed-Stuy, I'm sure there, there were blocks that today and at that moment in time resembled like, you know, the Huxtable household. Right. So, you know, I, so I don't take umbrage with that representational choice so much, but I think when you're thinking about this, the geography of Bed-Stuy at that specific time in that specific block, that's something I think about. Yeah. Uh, right. Although, you know, it's like he's creating the Bed-Stuy of the mind in that film. Like, you know, it's not like he's literally like, well, the Lexington Avenue in 1989 is like this, you know. Right. 
I'm sorry. I know we're going way longer than I promised. I've got a, a few more, but if you need to go, it's I okay. can't. Okay. It's okay. No, right. no, no. It's right. fine. Good. Because this is such good stuff. So I really, I want to want to try and hit a couple I more I blocked things. off the hour, man. Okay, so great. Okay, great. You, know. you make a point in the book that had never occurred to me before about his perspective and I guess sort of the, the ultimate outcome for his more military characters, for the kind of fates they have. Uh, militant, sorry, not military. His more militant characters mm -hmm. and the kind of fates that they have in his film. Yes, and I, yes. I, hmm. Going back to the short. Right. I mean, going back to Joe's bedside barbershop. Right. You know, all the way through, I would say, Chirac. Right. Although it's interesting now to talk about this stuff in the in the context of Defy Bloods, you know, mm. because, of course, that's about men who are literally in the military right. and have vastly different sort of ideological approaches to being black men in this particular historical moment. Um none of which we could call like black nationalism necessarily. Right. Um, but, uh, but certainly when uh, nationalists have appeared in his films, save Malcolm X, I feel like they've often been caricatures and, you know, I, I don't know if there is a, um, a larger ideological reading to be made about Spike and his belief system <laughs> from that. But I do find it really interesting. And, you know, certainly I think Do the Right Thing, which is the movie that is most explicitly trying to kind of think through these issues, perhaps in a somewhat didactic way, mm -hmm. uh, but in a way that nonetheless really works. I think, uh, you know, I, I think that it kind of comes down in a sort of middle ground, right? You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's sort of you're supposed to feel a little bad for Sal mm -hmm. and you're kind of supposed to feel like it, they probably still should have burned his, his pizzeria down. Right. You know, because that violence against Radio Rahim was used in Sal's name. Right. Like it was it, it was used in response to his inability to publicly display symbolically display if you will black icons alongside right. white icons and sal in the midst of that argument destroys someone else's property who then is killed by the police and you know i think this is a question that a lot of white people are thinking about now maybe for the first time right yeah like like do we how should we think about rioting when vis-a-vis -vis activism or like where should censure fall, you know, in that kind of circumstance. And I, I don't think that the movie necessarily advocates writing per se, mm -hmm. but I do think that it, it suggests that there's an ambiguity to these matters that is essentially American. Rioting is in our very DNA. It is how most of our cities have often solved their biggest problems. Yeah. Involving class, resource disparity, and race. You know, and ironically, you know, although the, I think in modern times, the sort of picture of the rioter is often like a black man upset about police brutality, ostensibly. You know, historically, and this is something I discuss elsewhere in the book when I'm talking about Cincinnati, my hometown, you know, which is a city that loves a good riot. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Man, we love a riot. You know? But historically, you know, 
riots were in America mostly held to get rid of black people, right? Or to protest the presence of black people. You know, the riot of the, at the end of uh, Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York, mm -hmm. the New York City draft riots, you know, the movie doesn't make much of this, which feels to me like one of its bigger flaws. Mm -hmm. But that riot was a riot to get rid of black people. Right. <laughs> you know, like that, right. That's what's going on there. Right. You know, it's not like the Italian and the Irish mobs are like, we got to fight it out, you know, which is kind of what the movie makes you think is going on. Mm -hmm. um, it's like they wanted to push black people out of the city. They pushed yeah. most of the black people out of Manhattan. You know, like mm -hmm. there was like an armed resistance that built in Weeksville, the black community in Brooklyn that was at for a time the largest black community in America, you know, as they absorbed refugees from Manhattan. Wow. But, you know, I just think that that's something that do the right thing uh, also doesn't necessarily engage with fully like there isn't like. No one on our, in our giant ensemble is rioting just because they want to break shit. Right. Or steal shit. They're rioting because they're angry that Radio Rahim was choked to death in front of them. Right. You know, um, now in the, you know, it'd be interesting if someone tried to make a sequel to do the right thing, which is so like uh, ridiculous, right? Like it's right. like it's like someone pitching you a sequel to Goodfellas or something. Right. You know, it's like, can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. Right. You know, watch someone will do it one day. But uh, what happens in the aftermath of Radio Raheem's death? Like, do those cops get charged? Like, is no. Ruben Blades off the force? No, they're you know? they're uh, they're in Jungle Fever. Those characters come back in Jungle Fever and almost shoot Wesley right. Snipes. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like, what happens to Sal's business? Is he embittered toward black people for good? Right. Like, do do other people go to jail? You know, like I just think that there's so many questions about that that we've never really had a movie kind of answer because the, that movie is kind of building up to that moment as opposed to, you know, fully inhabiting it. It's not, it's not trying to be Detroit. Right. Which is probably a good thing. The movie, it has, a, it has so much to say about race and police brutality in New York and in, and in America at the time it was made and draws from these specific tragedies, which he lists at the end and which we get into in, in the podcast. Cultural commentators, film historians, et cetera, continue to connect it to subsequent tragedies and moments in a changing New York and in America. Is it, is that, is that too easy? Is it to, to, to keep trying to draw solace from this work that was of that, that was born of a very specific moment, or does that just speak to the universality of that moment? I think it, well, I, I think it was born specifically of, of that moment in a lot of respects. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if so many of its cultural references obviously would work today. The bird magic, Michael Jordan conversation right. that, that John Turturro and Spike have and, you know, white people liking black culture, but not, you know, connecting with black people per se. But I, I do think that obviously its themes are just the most American themes and utterly timeless. And... Mm -hmm. Um, that's why the movie is as relevant today as it was, you know, um, in its moment. And, you know, quite frankly, I, I don't think there will ever be a, you know, a movie that 
grips the public imagination, whether it be black anger or white fear mm. in quite that way. Again, I mean, people forget that Richard Corliss thought the movie would, you know, start race riots. Oh, we'll get to that. (laughs) Black people would see the movie and suddenly turn angry and just break every white storefront they saw out of rage or something. I wish Richard was here to unpack that with us, but he's not. (laughs) You know, I, I think it is timeless. I think its themes are timeless, but I think it also grew out of its specific moment in a way that thoughtfully dates it. You know, that like it is coming at a point where black culture gained outside of music mm-hmm. right but in dress in, in sports and in various other modes a sort of cultural currency right that maybe had been building since the 70s but but really you know i think was flourishing in the mainstream in a profound way you know i don't know why i'm kind of circling back to your question a few mm-hmm. minutes ago like mm-hmm. like why he sees the nationalists or uh, Giancarlo Esposito's of the world, you know, uh, the, we want some brothers on the wall, like type, type, right? right? Why they always get the, the, they always founder, you know, or get killed or, you know, there isn't any sort of lasting amelioration to their concerns. And I think that's probably because, there isn't la- any la- there hasn't been any lasting amelioration to black concerns in general in this country. <laughs> you know, like, I think that might be what's going on. I think so many of our contemporary dystopias, for instance, are enable are unable to imagine a better future. Like we're just we're we're living in an era when like the dystopian film, the dystopian novel is sort of becoming historical fiction. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right? Like it's like, yeah. oh well, you know, we got something to top that. Yeah, the utopia never comes, right. and and seemingly like in Spike's movies, like, like the revolution never comes. Right, right. Like most deaf gets killed and bamboozled. Yep. You know, uh, obviously Malcolm dies, and when those characters aren't killed, they're kind of like treated as not particularly serious. You know, I, I think something like Get on the Bus is dealing with this stuff in a more thoughtful way. Mm-hmm. Of course, people forget that the Million Man March was like like held and put forward as like a pull, pull your pants up kind of thing. Right. You know? <laughs> like, I mean, people forget that, but like, yeah. that's really what was going on. Yeah. was like black men from all walks of life come together to say, we need to be better black men. Right. You know? And of course all people can be better, right? Yeah. yeah. We can be better black men. Yeah. But the country can should do be the way same. better. Yes. You know what I'm saying? It should be yeah. way better. Huh? Yeah. You know, I, 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 but I think that movie is kind of dealing with a lot of things with some nuance. It, it doesn't. And I would say that there's something interesting that like Spike's films that feel like chamber pieces or that have a constraint around them, mm-hmm. be it a stylistic constraints like Bamboozled, where he's like, I'm going to shoot this movie in the ugliest video I can find. Because <laughs> right. you know what? Everybody's doing it because it's 2001, you know? Right. Or um, Do the Right Thing, which takes place all in one day. Right. Right. Or 25th Hour, which right. takes place like like mostly over the course of what a couple days. Yeah. Or get on the bus, which takes place on a bus. Right. Those are like my favorite of his movies. That's I mean, a I good just point. named them yeah. other than, than, than Malcolm X, which I think is you know like a sprawling right biopic, the likes of which he also has never done. Right. Like he'd never done anything else like that. Right. And it has a magisterial quality that 
none of his other movies quite do, I think, mm-hmm. um, because of it. It, fe- it truly feels like an epic. Right. You know? Right. Okay. So we, we get into the, the reaction, the initial reaction, uh, as you can imagine, uh, which you mentioned a bit earlier. I want to read you, if I can, uh, some excerpts and just get your reactions to them. Um, these are pieces by white critics published before the film's release, summer of 89. Jack Kroll in Newsweek, quote, In this long, hot summer, how will young urban audiences, black and white, react to the film's climactic explosion of interracial violence. People are going to argue about this film for a long time. That's fine as long as things stay on the arguing level. But this movie is dynamite under every seat. End quote. What, what's Jack Kroll saying in a, in a quote like that? I don't know, man. I don't know. You know, like, I, I feel like people thought, like, were people actually reviewing the spook who sat by the door and they, they just didn't realize it? Like, when they were making speech about everything. Because, of course, you know, I mean, the spook, that's a, that, that's a truly revolutionary movie, although it also suggests the revolution is impossible, right? right. Like, no, no one in the movie ever imagines, like, the, the movie where, you know, there isn't the movie where, like, black people are just granted Indiana. Right. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, we're it's like, we get our own reservation and it's Indiana. Right. You know, I'd love to see that movie, by the way. I yeah. think that's a really interesting thought. Like someone should make that movie about 1870. Right. You know, that like sort of, you know, they, they, I, I can't remember the, there was that show by the game of Thrones creators that got canceled mm-hmm. where it was like, what if the Confederacy won? And people right. are like, I don't want to see that. Like, right. that's messed up. Even though of course, you know, Kevin Wilmot, one of Spike Lee's, Right. Uh, more significant con- contemporary collaborators, you know, did a very similar thing in his mockumentary. Right. Um, CSA. CSA, yeah. Uh, which is great. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I think the more interesting thing is like, well, what if Reconstruction had led to like like black communities that were sort of like the precursor to that, the community that Paul Beatty is kind of imagining mm-hmm. in The Sellout. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read The Sellout, <laughs> but it, it's a monumental piece of literature. Mm. I, you know, I, I think in, in its own way, it is the greatest set of American race relations mm. uh, in, of its generation. Wow. Um, okay. And uh, it, it, just to recap, I mean, the book is, a, is, is set in a fictional South LA neighborhood called Dickens mm-hmm. that is going, undergoing some gentrification and has a, you know, terrible sort of um, reputation for being like a violent urban ghetto. And it's about a young, unnamed pot and watermelon farmer and horse rancher okay. in this neighborhood who has been raised by his radical sociologist father in a very unusual manner. Mm-hmm. You know, um, his father to prepare him for a world of white supremacy would like don a Ronald Reagan mask and like throw firecrackers at him. And, you know, like, <laughs> like that. Uh, like child abuse, basically. Right. And you know, he grew up like loving Joni Mitchell, weirdly. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, it's it's just such a, a sort of miasma of things. But, but the brass tacks of it is that he decides after his father's death at the hands of the LAPD to resegregate Dickens. Hmm. And basically, everyone in the community buys that buys into it with him. Hmm. And and meanwhile. Um, he meets a, a former black child star named Hominy Jenkins, who's a legend in the community, who is the only black little rascal. Okay. And Hominy 
is is so conditioned to white racism that he's not comfortable when white racism isn't around. <laughs> so, so our our unnamed protagonist agrees to enslave Hominy. Okay. And so Hominy becomes his slave. So it's like black on black slavery. Okay. And then that gets discovered. And so you know our protagonist goes to jail, and his case about whether he should be able to re-enslave Hominy goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Oh, my God. Where, of course, Clarence Thomas finally has something to say. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, it's great. It's, it's, yeah. true. it's just a comic masterpiece. I mean, it, yeah. it's up there with, like, you know, Catch-22 and wow. Confederacy of the Dunces and <laughs> stuff like that. I, I would have loved to have seen in his prime Spike Lee's imagination take on a story like that. You know, and maybe, maybe, maybe he will. Maybe he'll be the guy to adapt that novel. I don't, I don't know, but but I, I just feel like we never, we we rarely see that vision of like, well, what would actual black self determination, right, full political agency, look like, right? And you know, I think in part that's because white supremacist thinking um, and action has in this country long tried to stymie any possibility of that you know it was only a month or so ago that we were we had the 99th anniversary of the tulsa massacre you know and yeah i know there are many 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 figures in the night who will probably want to make a movie about that but but basically like i um you know i don't think that we've had that many visions of of black self-determinacy determination or agency in popular culture until the 70s and 80s but even those are still tied to like uh, a notion of kind of escaping the subjugation of american whites and so you know i think that's what afrofuturism like as a concept is constantly sort of banding about mm-hmm. like you know how where can that be created and how you know um, I don't know if you've seen like Space is the Place, mm-hmm. the, the Sun Ra movie, mm-hmm. but there's a scene in that movie where he's talking about how like black people basically just need to like leave the planet <laughs> and that yeah. like a better black future is possible, you know, yeah. and um, this all runs in the, you know, smack in the face of like the idea of America as a melting pot. That's like the city on the hill that's like working, you know, ever onward toward progress and, and, and inclusion and what have you. Um, which of course is an interesting myth about a country founded on genocide. Right. Um, but has, I don't think ever really been true. And, um, and you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have mainstream historians debate me and I have some very, they're very prominent mainstream historians who become good friends of mine over the most recent years. And, uh, I don't think they actually feel that way. (laughs) (laughs) Even if they, even they might say stuff like that on television, you right. know, like they, they actually feel the way. I want to read you one more of these of these quotes, and then and then we'll wrap up. Um, yeah. Here's Joe Klein. This is in New York Magazine, and um, and I know you'll appreciate this as a New Yorker. This, you know, talk. He's he's writing about the film from the from the perspective of this is in the run up to the fall '89 mayoral election when Dinkins uh, went up against Giuliani the first time, right, and won. So he's writing about it through that lens, and he writes. Quote, Dinkins will also have to pay the price for Spike Lee's reckless new movie about a summer race riot in Brooklyn, Do the Right Thing, which opens June 30th in not too many theaters near you, one hopes. 
He also writes, it is Spike Lee himself in the role of Sal's delivery man who starts the riot by throwing a garbage can through the store's window, one of the stupider, most self-destructive acts of violence I've ever witnessed. If black kids act on what they see, Lee may have destroyed his career in that moment. And he says, quote, if Lee does hook large black audiences, there's a good chance the message they take from the film will increase racial tensions in the city. If they react violently, which can't be ruled out, the candidate with the most to lose will be David Dinkins. End quote. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where, where do we even start with this? Well, I mean, obviously I think his analysis of the film is wrong, but I think his like political analysis might not be that far afield, right? Like mm. if, if, if do the right thing had started like riots, right? right? Like let's assume that it had for some reason. Okay. Um, which of course it didn't and never would, but had it. Um, yeah, I think like, you know, uh, parts of New York, uh, in its various white ethnic communities, uh, working class communities, uh, as well as, you know, um, uh, you know, Tony, uh, bankers and lawyers and, and society members and the Upper East Side or something. I think they all would have probably felt like, like, yeah, like that, that, that would, that, that would have made mm. the Dickens campaign suffer. Probably. Mm. I, su I suspect, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it didn't yeah. and it never was, but yes, had that un uh hard to imagine without an actual filmed act of police <laughs> brutality like we saw in Los Angeles three years later right happened um black people don't go to the movies and then get upset and riot I when has that happened you know like <laughs> like I mean really you know and again that's been a fear like the spook who sat by the door Right. Like, that's why that movie was suppressed. Right. You know, like, literally, it prints taken from theaters, you know, like, b ostensibly by the government, says Ivan Dixon and Sam Greenlee to their dying days. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I, the audio isn't available on the internet anywhere, but Sam Greenlee gave a remarkable talk about that picture and what happened in the weeks before its release mm -hmm. and after its release, in quotes. Mm -hmm. um, at the, I want to say it was like the LA Film Festival in like 2004. Elvis Mitchell okay. was hosting it, and man, I really wish I could find the audio of that because it's just like it was just so searing. Yeah, and it was the moment where I I first realized that like like public expressions of black nationalism were basically seen as criminal acts. Yeah, at a certain point, and to be fair, maybe still are at times, right? You know, I don't know what what. New York, that guy was imagining he lived in. I guess he hadn't spent much time in black New York to think that, like, a movie in the middle of the summer without any other context would cause us, you know, in mass to go out and riot. But, um, but you know, funny things. <laughs> <laughs> funny way to think about the world that, that, uh, yeah. that way. Uh, uh, now, you know, and maybe he's thinking that, like, you know, once upon a time, a birth of a nation came out mm -hmm. and clan membership increased. By the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Yeah. And those guys knew how to riot. Yeah. They'll do. Damn. 
Okay. Last question. Spike has said in interviews since the since the movie came out that the question he's most often asked is, "Does Mookie do the right thing?" Which is obviously a pretty myopic question. I do wonder the bigger question, which is how the title relates in the question of does anybody do the right thing or do different people do different combinations of right and wrong things? I think that doing the right thing is pretty much impossible. Like everyone in the movie is set up to fail Mm. in a way. Yeah. And the closest anyone can get to doing the, the groping toward finding the right way to treat each other is what Mookie and Sal are doing in, in the picture's final scene. Wow. And I don't think they get there. Yeah. But they're at least aware that no one is better for what has happened. And for the, the term you just used, the myopia with which everyone's experiences were viewed. The lack of empathy with which everyone's experiences were viewed. Hmm. And yet, at the end of the day, it was the white man that started the violence, that Hmm. started the property destruction. And it was the agents of the state who were there to protect his property, who killed an innocent black man in the street for no reason. And, you know, I don't know if you're a believer. (laughs) I don't know if... Eye for an eye means anything to to you, you know, <laughs> but uh, it means a lot to a lot of people. Yeah, and uh, vengeance is one of the more animating forces in the human character. Sad to say, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people are acting out of that then and now, um, because of the failure of imagination to think through what renewal, what remuneration, what reparations, what can our society be? If we'd like, think about it, not outside of the box of like America, you know, a 240 odd year old institution, but like, let's just think as if the box never existed. Yeah. That's how much of a ground up rethinking the country needs. So that things like, you know, in fiction, Sal's Pizzeria, or in reality, the Wendy's where Rashad Brooks was killed, don't burn to the ground. All right. So there's that. So thank you again to Brandon Harris for 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 clearing the hour for me. And again, and, and you know, we, we've we've uh, uh, pushed it as much as we can, but I cannot recommend more highly uh, his his book, which is Making Ren and bed sort of a combination of memoir and, and essays on pop culture topics. There's a great essay on Spike uh, and his sort of complicated philosophical and intellectual and and uh, industry relationship with Spike that is just a is a great read. Um, thank you again, Brandon, for, for for that. Thank you guys all for listening. I hope you enjoyed the bonus episode. We're gonna we're gonna keep them up between the regular episodes. And I guess might should we should we talk a little bit about the next regular episode just to to whet some appetite? Maybe I guess. Oh man, it's gonna be good, dude. Yeah. Um. You know, it, I, I I use the expression in the um 
in the beginning of this episode of, you know, sort of lighting a cigarette off the butt of the last one. And we're sort of doing that with this episode because the next episode is titled Starring the NYPD. And it's about police representation in New York cinema and specifically sort of how the dysfunction of the NYPD uh, up to and including the current moment has sort of been fed by the kinds of cops that we see in New York movies and the way that those movies feel about how they do the job and how important it is for them to follow the rules and how uh, how important it is for them to have any kind of oversight. You know, there, there have been a lot of battles about the degree to which the NYPD is sort of a, a police force of cowboys. And when you look at some of the films that we're talking about, you can start to trace that to how probably a lot of the guys who are on the force now grew up seeing the job on the silver screen. So we'll leave it at that. We'll, we'll, we'll say also that we have, I think an incredible guest list worked up. Uh, I'm really happy with who's going to be coming on. And I would also say that if you want to sort of start to prep for it yourself, this is kind of a viewing list. Some of the movies we, we will be talking about and referencing and, and getting into French connection, uh, Serpico, the seven ups, uh, the super cops, across 110th Street. These are all also just like really good movies, so you should see them anyway. Uh, in addition to Serpico, you, know, you can round out Lumet's All Cops or Bastards trilogy with uh, Prince of the City and Q&A. We've talked about The Naked City in the, the, the preview of the show. We'll talk about that a little bit. Night of the Juggler, Nighthawks, 16 Blocks, Madigan, Badge 373. Like there's a rich, rich history of, of New York cop cinema, and we're going to get into a lot of it in that next episode. Bonus points if you've heard of, like, more than four of those. <laughs> What's that? One of the really uh, great things for me about being friends with you is you just kind of nonchalantly toss off so many movies that most people have never even heard of. So <laughs> it's just a much deeper well than I imagined. Uh, and I think we're going conti to continue to have this experience. Like, it was interesting to me, the last episode was really about one movie right and drilling like all the way down on one episode or on one movie i mean and it was it's cool it was cool to do that but i think it's it's really interesting to me and hopefully it will be to everybody else to see kind of this is a completely different kind of foundational concept right i mean this style is the same a lot of different things are the same obviously the writer and narrator is the same but it's a completely different approach in terms of you've got 12 or 13 movies here that you're kind of working in between instead of really diving into one and i for one as the person who doesn't write this thing is super excited to see how it comes <laughs> out I, i'm curious to see how you're gonna do that exactly should be interesting yeah so. all right thank you everybody for listening thank you for checking out the bonus episode thank you thank you for being patrons please encourage your friends with an extra five or ten bucks a month to uh do the same and we'll catch you in a few weeks with episode two. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>